All right, this morning let's take our Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, we're going to be looking at a larger section this morning, verse 14 to 29. So for the sake of time, I'll not read that, but I will cover it in the message this morning. Let's pray before I start. Let's pray. Father, thank you for bringing us here today. We know, Lord, it's by your providence, it's by your mercy and your care for us that you allow our ears to take in truth from heaven that comes from the word of God. What a privilege that is. I pray, Lord, that we would never take for granted of it. For we know someday there will be a famine in our land for truth. So I pray, Lord, that you allow us to learn it and get it in our heart and that we would think about it, meditate upon it, and it would become part of our conversation, part of our thinking, part of our decisions, would reflect us growing in righteousness and holiness. And I pray, Lord, in doing so, that we may fall in line behind John the Baptist, that we may be a character like him. So, Lord, bless our time in the Word of God this morning, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, this morning, um, the last time that I was in uh, Mark, which was last week, we learned about the test mission of the apostles, that the mission in which the twelve went on took them from being a disciple, really, to being a practical apostle, a disciple who was just a mere learner, a mere student, to an apostle who was a sent one, a commissioned one by their master, accompanied by their master's authority and sent out in their master's name. The apostles went out from a calling to follow Jesus, now to a commissioning to carry out the work of ministry and advance the message of the gospel and the message of the kingdom of God. It was far from an easy task. However, the apostles learned from this test mission that Jesus can be fully trusted, that God's power was with them, and that God would supply all their needs and that God's providential care was active and living in the small details of their life. That must be learned by all of us if we're going to do anything for the Lord. So this on-the-job training mission actually revealed that the apostles were ready for more responsibilities. They were ready for more missions because if you noticed that this pattern that we've been looking at, it's all about being rejected. So Jesus was teaching the apostles that ministry, that serving him, that living for God in this world will be hard. It will not be an easy thing. And then, of course, the final outcome of the cost of discipleship is that Christ calls to discipleship that is God-dependent, that is Christ-like, not only in the individual themselves, but in the community where that individual worships and attends and lives under the rule of Christ in their life. So, just to keep in mind that this conflict narrative is set in the construction of the top of the sandwich, the middle of the sandwich, and the bottom of the sandwich. Well, this morning we're going to look at the bottom of the sandwich, which completes the narrative package. The first part of the sandwich, the top slice, was the number one rejection story, and that was the opposition of Jesus' hometown. They rejected him. Of course, that taught the disciples uh, that mission in the lost world will result in with resistance and hostility. It also taught them that those closest to them may be the ones that reject them the most. And then, of course, those 
who are not open to Jesus may discover that God is no longer open to them. And of course, that led to the middle of the sandwich, which we looked at last week, and that was the mission of the 12 apostles. And of course, this uh, visit to Nazareth prepared the disciples for their first given mission, that they would go out without Jesus, and they would find out they were able to accomplish their mission. So they came back. If you notice in verse number 30 of chapter 6, so here's the sandwich. Here are how it, this is how it ends, verse 30. The apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. So this is one big sandwich. And if you have to take it all together and bring it all together and tie it all together to get the sense of what is actually going on. So this morning, we're going to look at the bottom of the piece of bread in this narrative, and that is the story of John the Baptist, or better, John the Baptizer. All right, John wasn't a Baptist, all right, but he was a baptizer, all right? So really, that's the more correct way of thinking of John the Baptist. So the, other, the underneath part of the narrative is written with all the intrigue of a modern-day sitcom. I try to give that sense in my sermon title, which this title is, Verdicts, Conscience, Revenge, and Death. I mean, that's a good movie right there. This would be make a great movie. This really would. Uh, so it, good, it just goes to show you that the, the human heart is still wicked above all things and capable of expressing all the drama of human fallenness in everyday experience. So when I started out preaching the gospel of Mark, I said this, that Mark's aim was to give a picture of Jesus as he was, of what Jesus said and what he did. Mark evokes a wonderment and astonishment and an awe in his display of Jesus. Now, if you haven't figured it out yet, Christianity is about the person of Jesus Christ. Christianity is not just one of many views to choose from. It is not just an optimistic view of life, and it is not just a matter of certain morals and conduct. It is not merely a religious system to adhere to. Christianity is about Jesus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Christianity is not a teaching. It is a person. And that's what makes it completely different from all the religions of the world. So what people need today is they need to know him. They need to come into a relationship with him by believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we find from Scripture that when Jesus is presenting to people, either people are pierced in their heart concerning the significance of Jesus, convicted of their unbelief, which leads them to repentance of their sins and turning to Jesus in faith, or they simply ignore the message and remain in quiet, uninterested unbelief. Or they aggressively reject the message. All those are operative everywhere you go in the world. Matter of fact, you may have experienced them on your own, in your own ministry and going in and out with your Christian life. So, in the Gospel of Mark, really, he points out two essential questions uh, that are definitely apparent all over the epistle. Uh, all over the gospel, excuse me. And it, which really says this, the questions are, who do you perceive yourself to be? And then, who do you perceive God to be? See, the question is, who is Jesus? It's all over Mark. In fact, when we started off uh, with Mark, we found out in chapter 4 that 
when Jesus, remember, rebuked the wind and the waves and they obeyed him, what did the apostles, what did the disciples say? Who then is this? Who is this person? And then later on in the Gospel of Mark, we find that Jesus again brings up the question to his disciples, who do people say that I am? So, see, in other words, that is a relevant question. I would say this, that is the only relevant question. It is one that needs a correct answer. And how we get that correct answer is by reading the Gospels. And, of course, the whole, a whole of the Word of God. So confusion abounds in our very day about that question as to who Jesus is. And so that is why today there remains a profound need to take a fresh look at the person of Jesus and the purpose of his life on earth as found in the scriptures. So saying that, it seems like in our text that at the highest level of government, the message of Jesus came into the king's room and he had a deal with what was going on with Jesus. So verdicts about who Jesus is was circling around the government. And so that's where Mark picks it up And we're going to see several things because there's three sections in this part of the narrative. The first section is this. It's a section about the verdicts on what people, who people think Jesus is. And so there's, the first thing is this. There's three specimens of opinions held about Jesus. And this brings us in to the story and to the narrative that is contained in verse number, of course, Uh, 14 to verse number 30. Now, let's look at it. Uh, Before I look at each one, I want to say this, that the divergence of opinions is all because of unbelief. And the reason for unbelief is a refusal to see Jesus for who he really is. Now, who is he? He is the Messiah, of course, as presented in the gospel without him saying that he is. And that He's not someone else. That's who he is. He's the prophesied one. He's the one greater than Moses. He's the final word from the Father about who the Father is and what God's plan is for the salvation of humanity. So consequently, the Gospel of Mark is so much needed for our times because there is always a danger of misrepresenting the truth about Jesus and the essence of real biblical faith, real biblical Christianity. It's like what one seminary uh, president said, in today's world, we increasingly face the pressure of waking up day after day, breathing a looming, toxic, poisonous air of unbelief that's all around us. So this requires us to put our feet on the floor, believing deliberately, and to have a foundation that sustains our belief. And, of course, what sustains our belief is to maintain, maintain a high view of God, a high view of Scripture, and a commitment to the plenary verbal inspiration, inerrancy, and final authority of the Bible. That will sustain our belief because this is God's word that you have in your hands. So then the Gospel of Mark is a reliable witness of the astounding person and the transforming mission of Jesus in the context of the inbreaking eternal rule of God that came with Jesus, that is continuing with the Spirit of God, and that will ultimately end with Jesus finally vanquishing his enemies and ruling and reigning over everything. That's the goal. All right, so here's the first opinion we find in our text, verse number 14 of Mark chapter 6. Number one is Herod's opinion. Here's King Herod's opinion. Uh, I'll give it to you right at the get-go, and then I'll read the text that Herod deduced that this Jesus is John the baptizer risen from the dead. 
Now, why would Herod Antipas think that John the baptizer returned to life? Well, King Herod feared that John the baptizer had come back to haunt him. Look at verse number 14. And King Herod heard of it, that he heard the message of Jesus of it for his name, had become well known, and people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead. And that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. So, see, this is what's coming in to the government at that time. And King Herod, of course, is hearing about it, and he's afraid. He's haunted by this message of Jesus, these things that Jesus is doing. Now, since Jesus is, from Herod's perspective, John risen from the dead, then that is why these works of powers are active in him. However, Jesus' powers had gone far beyond John's. In fact, to my knowledge, you may be able to correct me on this, I don't believe that the scriptures ever record John the baptizer ever doing any miracles. See, John's power was embodied in his teaching, in his fiery preaching, and in his holy character of being righteous and holy, which is contained in this text. So see, Mark chapter 6 and verse number 16 does give us a glimpse. Look at verse 16 into why Herod held this opinion of Jesus. Verse 16, but when Herod heard of it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. Now you can see why he's being haunted, right? Because what's going on here? You know what's going on here? And and this is what the, well, let me just back up for a minute. Who is Herod? There's many Herods, right? That was the title given to uh, the Herods of you know, King Herod the Great, and then all below him, his sons would be called Herod too. All right? This was Herod Antipas. He was ruler over Galilee and Perea. He was recognized locally as a king, but he was not recognized by Rome as a king. And the reason for that was that he only ruled over a quarter of, of King Herod's domain. So he was just a tetrarch, they call it. That means that a tetrarch was somebody who just ruled over a portion of the full realm of the kingdom. All right? And many times, the king would not be recognized as a king, but as somebody who does certain government duties under the king and had certain ruling powers. That's who really who he was. But he called himself a king, and the local people in Galilee and Perea called him king. The reason why is because he wanted to be called king. So there's a little bit of ego going on here in our narrative. All right, so what's going on is Herodive, I mean, Herod has a guilty conscience. All right, so the life of John the Baptist caused him to feel like Jesus is John the Baptist, come to haunt him because he's guilty, right? Because Herod had John jailed, bound, put in prison, and finally beheaded. Herod perceived that John had come to haunt him for his sins and commit that he committed against him because of his acts against John. Uh, The acts against John was really, really tormented his soul. Look at verse 17, the first part of it. It says, for Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison. So see, Herod is the one guilty of doing this to John. That's the number one opinion. Now, before I look at what, why that happened, uh, let's look at the second opinion about Jesus in verse number 15 of Mark chapter 6. It says, but others were saying he's Elijah. All right? So some thought that Jesus was Elijah come again, that the thought about this is that Uh, before Messiah, the conquering king, would come and lead the Jews back to liberty, Elijah, the the greatest of the prophets, would come again to be Messiah's herald and forerunner. 
And that was definitely in the minds of the Jews, all right? They did not recognize John as any, for, as any forerunner. In fact, uh, the practice of the Jews, even till this day, is when the Jews celebrate the Passover feast, they leave an, at the table an empty chair called Elijah, Elijah's chair. They place a glass of wine before it, and at one part of their service, they go out to the door and fling it open wide that Elijah may come and bring at last the long-awaited news that Messiah had come. All right, they're still doing that. Obviously, they don't believe Jesus is Messiah even today. They don't, all right? Uh, so that is what's going on. So the motive for those who believed that it was Elijah, that Jesus was Elijah, is really a perception of Jesus. Uh, it's not someone who wants to obey and submit to God as a servant, but somebody who wants something from God, somebody who wants to be to use God for their own selfish purposes and advancement, all right? That God would do this for us because we're Jews, all right? So the motive was, motive was all wrong. And then there's a third opinion in our text, verse 15. Others were saying that he is a prophet, like the one of the prophets of old. Now, some thought that Jesus was one like the Old Testament prophets come to speak for God. Now, why did they believe that? The Jews were very conscious that God had not spoken through a human prophet for hundreds of years. Now, of course, we know that Jesus identified John the baptizer as the last prophet, as the prophet who would come and speak after hundreds and hundreds of years of God not speaking through a prophet. So, see, their motive, well, they were kind of on a right path, this group but they still fell short of believing that Jesus was the Son of God. So, see, the motive here in this perception of Jesus could simply be a desire to hear the voice other than the moral lectures of and the legal disputations of their rabbis who just repeated over and over again the same stuff, stuff coupled with a weighty list of do's and don'ts. They wanted a fresh voice. That's what they wanted, and that's what they heard in Jesus. They heard a fresh voice. Jesus spoke like no one else spoke. And so this becomes, all these fall short of who Jesus really is. So see, if they stay there in that belief, they will not come to understand who Jesus is. Therefore, they will not come into the kingdom of God. All right, so... With that said, let me pick up the narrative of John the Baptist again. Now, the question would be for us, why did Herod, excuse me, why did Herod arrest John and imprison him? Well, look at verse 17 and 18 uh, in our text. It said, for Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, but because he had married her, verse 18, for John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Now, John most likely pronounced Herod's unlawful actions publicly in the wilderness, not face to face, at least not initially, because we know that Herod wanted, liked to visit John in prison and talk with him. So John probably just had the same message to him there. So John, he preached against the flagrant sin of Herod and called for his repentance. So Herod's seduction of his brother's wife and his adulterous marriage is what instigated John's arrest. John exposed the sin of adultery at the highest level of, gover of a government official. Of course, he could have had his life taken right away for that. But just think of the character of John to stick his uh, finger in the face of a powerful leader and tell him his sin 
And, you know, the thing about John is that he was clear about it. He did not mince words. So Herod was, remember, already to marry, married to the daughter of Aretas, uh, the king of Arabia in Patria. Now, Herodias, in our text, was the daughter of Aristobulus. She first married her full uncle, Herod, called Philip, a full brother of Aristobulus. And this Philip was disinherited through the treachery of his mother, and he lived as a wealthy citizen privately in Rome with Herodias and their daughter Salome. While Herod Antipas, which we're looking at in our text, while he was on a visit to Rome, he seduced her and persuaded her to leave her husband, or she seduced him and persuaded him that he should take her for a wife. Right? It could be the latter because of her character. Now, so that the wife of Antipas, his original wife, the daughter of Artis, not waiting to be divorced, went to her father, who was the king of the Nabataeans. And a war followed between Artis and Herod Antipas, and in which, of course, Artis heavily defeated Herod in battle. So, see, John was saying to Herod Antipas, you are breaking God's law. And where did he get that from? He got it from, of course, right from the word of God in Leviticus. And he was saying, listen, John was just saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. It's, he, this is a Jewish province, all right? So he cannot be breaking the law. So John spoke plainly, plain truth, truth about Herod's sin, regardless of all the consequences that would come with it. And John the baptizer, of course, was referring to passages like Leviticus 18, where it says, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. All right, that means you should not have sexual relations with her. All right, and then in 1816, if there is a man who takes his brother's wife, it is abhorrent. And, of course, they will be guilty of that sin. So he's referring to these texts and giving them to Herod. And so Herod, uh, of course, comes under the a guilt. He comes under the powerful, truthful word of John the Baptist, and he ends up living every day of his life guilty, guilt-ridden in his conscience. Now, let me just give you a little background of the sinfully twisted family dealings of the Herods and their matrimonial entanglements. All right, because there is many of them. Herod the Great was married many times. Matter of fact, in my reading, I think he was married up to 25 times. Towards the end of his life, he became insanely suspicious and murdered member after member of his own family. In fact, his sons. His first wife was Doris. She had a son named Antipater. He was suspicious of him and murdered him. He married a second wife, Amni, and she had a son, Alexander, and Aristobulus. He murdered both of them. But before Aristobulus uh, got put to death by his father, he had a daughter named Herodias, which is in our text. All right? Now, Herodias, King Herod married another woman uh, from another section of the region, and, of course, she had a son named Herod Philip who married Herodias. So Herodias was married to Herod Philip, not to Herod Antipas, all right? And so what happens is that Herodias had a daughter with Philip, and that daughter was named Salome. She's also in our text. All right? What happened is that Herod Antipas stole Herodias, or Herodias seduced him. And, of course, she ended up eloping with him. And so Herodias and her daughter Salome came to live uh, with Herod Antipas. All right, now. That's, if you don't understand all that, don't worry about it. It's a twisted tanglement, believe me. All right, and it goes, I'm, I'm going to give you the tip of the iceberg. It goes into graphic detail about 
the sin from the top levels uh, down. Now, there was a Jewish saying that said, it is safer to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. But don't forget this. Herodias knew the history of her, of King, King Herod the Great. It was a murderous history. All right, so nonetheless, some of that really trickled down to her character. So who was Herodias? Well, she was the daughter of Herod Antipas' half-brother, Aristobulus, therefore his niece. She was the wife of his half-brother, Herod Philip, therefore she was his sister-in-law. Now, that's very close blood, all right? And, of course, the, the Word of God warns against that kind of intermarriage thing. And of course, there's a lot of sins going on here. There's many other things going on. So, But with that in mind, because John the Baptist wanted to come against Herodias, all right, and, of course, her very name tells you where she's connected to, Herodias, the female version of Herod. Right, It tells you she's connected to the line of Herod. And so this gives her an opportunity for the next thing in our section of Scripture, revenge. She wanted revenge. Well, why did she? Look at verse number 19 of chapter 6. All right, now you can see why this would make a good movie. All right, it says in verse 19, it says, And Herodias had a grudge against him, John the baptizer, and wanted to put him to death. But notice what it says, and could not do so. Now, that's interesting because in the second section of our text about revenge, it's also about how people react to the conviction of the truth that was spoken by John the Baptist, that she came under conviction too. She, though, had a very seared conscience, and Herodias had a murderous hatred toward John and wanted him dead. She wanted to put him to death, as it says in verse number 19. But if you notice at the end of verse number 19, she couldn't do it. Why couldn't she do it? Because actually, according to our text, Herod's fear of John kept Herodias from carrying out her wishes to kill John. All right, now, that was her motives and feelings and action towards John the baptizer. She just wanted him dead. All right, now, what was Herod's motives, feelings, and actions towards John the baptizer? Well, Herod's, his conscience was two things. It was divided, and it was guilty. Now, remember, somebody who has a seared conscience and somebody who has a divided and guilty conscience they're going to respond to truth in their own way. And the way that Herodias responds to truth is wanting to kill the messenger. The way that Herod responds to truth is that he is guilty about what he has done and was forced to do, all right? But also, he's very perplexed in his soul. Here's a king that can't sleep at night, he's restless. He cannot rest at all. And look at verse number 20. So Herod feared John. He feared people. He feared judgment. Look at verse 20. For Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and kept him safe from who? Herodias, right? And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. Now, that doesn't make any sense, right? But it does make sense if you have a guilty conscience and if you have a divided spirit, right? See, he was guilty for not doing the right thing because John told them what the right thing is. This is the right thing, King Herod. You have to get rid of Herodias because she's your brother's wife, not yours. You stole her from him. And according to the law of God, you're guilty of that. See, that's pretty clear, right? Well, you have to respond to clarity of truth, which we all do, all right? But Herod, 
Interestingly, he had a, a, a respect for John because John spoke the truth. The truth held an amazing power over Herod's conscience, which at the same time comforted him and as well as disturbed and terrified him. See, the king was haunted by both sin and goodness. He was haunted in his conscience by both sin and goodness. Now, let me just throw this in for a minute. Conscience, what is it? You all have one, right? You all have a conscience. Every one of you have a conscience. The conscience can be described as the thoughts within a person either accusing or excusing them. It is, as a person lives each day, it is their thoughts that cannot be shut out. And guilty thoughts will make a person restless and afraid. And it is Christ's truth, faithfully preached and taught, that can free a person from sin and guilt. Of course, by faith, in Christ alone, in his precious death and burial and his resurrection. However, even though Herod heard John gladly, he was at a loss of what to do. If you notice in our text, it says that he was very perplexed. He didn't know what to do. Herod was not a good leader. He waffled on things. He would like to have followed the godly course pointed out by John, but he could not break away from his former life. He would not give up his adultery. He would not give up Herodias. And in turn, Herod was unable to make a decision. So that made him unstable, undecided, puzzled, and a law, at a loss in morals and ethics and religious judgment. He would not repent. He loved his sin. That's the bottom line. He knew the message that John preached of repentance and faith to enter the kingdom of God. But he didn't, he didn't, he didn't have the courage the motive uh, to believe. He liked his life. He liked his power. He liked his position. He liked his sin. He enjoyed Herodias. Obviously, they were in love because uh, it's recorded in history that Herod Antipas uh, actually went to Rome for them to recognize him to be a king, and they rejected him as king. And so he was banished in exile, and Herodias didn't leave him when she had a chance to. She stayed with him. So obviously they were in love, but it doesn't make things right. Love doesn't make things right. You realize that, right? And so we have to be very uh, sensitive in our conscience to truth. So we will become stable. We will become decisive. We will become unpuzzled, and we will not have a loss of moral and ethical convictions about what is right and wrong. That's what truth does. All right? If anybody should know what right and wrong is, we should, because we are believers and we have the word of God. All right? We should. All right? So it's not, it hasn't ended yet. All right? Now, how in the world? Is Herodias going to get rid of John? Here's her plan. Look at verse number 18. Well, let's look, look, look at verse 21 first before I look at verse 18. It says in verse 21, well, we already looked at 18 and 19. Uh, verse 21 says, A strategic day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. Now, this is how she's going to do it. She's going to scheme on this celebration to know this is the strategic moment. She was very strategic. All right? 
And so verse 21 tells us that it was a day filled with company, with drinking, with dancing. It was on this day, a strategic day, that Herodias will implement her plan, and she counts on the weakness and the instability and the vanity of Herod. She's counting on that. Matter of fact, she pegged him. She had him pegged. Now, how does she do it further? Look at verse 22. She says, well, how am I going to get him, once he's in his drunken stupor, to succumb to my plan? Well, look at verse 22. She gets her daughter Salome to dance a seductive dance to lure him in. It says in verse 22, and when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and the dinner guest. Now, there's a big problem. You, you don't see it in the text, but there's a big problem here. Salome danced publicly solo. However, in those days, solo dances before a public audience were the craft of prostitutes. Because the dance was immoral, it was vulgar, it was sexually provocative. In fact, Salome was encouraged by her mother to willingly perform in this way herself. Really was a grim commentary on both her character and a character of her mother. See, also, for a royal princess to expose and demean herself in this way is such, in such a public manner in those days and even today would be beyond belief. You don't act that way if you're the princess, right? The princess has a decorum and demeanor about her that represents the king. Of course, it is representing the king. And it's representing, so it's actually she did a good job representing her mother uh, and also her stepfather. It's never, it never mentions in scripture that Herodias is his wife. Right? It never mentions that Salome is his daughter. It just says the daughter of Herodias. So, th- see, the scripture is keeping very clear the problems that are going on. And if you notice in verse number 22, this is a problem, too, that she pleased Herod and the dinner guest. Now, I don't know if you caught the dinner guest that was there, but they were, they were the heavyweights of his kingdom. They were the ones that... Listen, if you are going to do something, you better mean what you say. All right? And so that is what's taking place. Now, at this particular junction, something happens. Herod makes a folly-ridden promise, an oath. Look what it says in verse 20. Well, in verse 22. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you want, and I will give it to you. And he swore to her, whatever you ask me, I will give it to you up to half my kingdom. Now, see, Herod, in the moment of excitement, offers the daughter of Herodias a royal promise and then couples it with a royal oath. That was a real big mistake. And the reason why is that a royal oath makes a promise irrevocable. And he did this publicly before his distinguished guest. All right, not, I don't know if he was catching on whether this is the plan of his wife all along, or his stolen wife, whatever you want to call her. So Herod is also breaking an Old Testament law again by acting impulsively. He made actually a reckless promise without taking, thinking of the implications it warns in leviticus that if some a person swears thoughtlessly with his lips to do evil or good that person will become guilty and so he's doing the same thing he's just breaking god's law all over the place so here's a picture of what often results from partying and feasting and letting loose what happens when that goes on your guards let down Right? Late hours, crowded rooms, splendid entertainment, alcohol, music, mixed company. It sometimes seems harmless, 
Yet it is often these events that inflame the passions and desires which cause people to do things that afterward they deeply, deeply regret. You know story after story you heard of people went to a a party where there was drugs and there was drinking and there was just loose company and what happens is disaster strikes, right? Uh, It happens all the time. It happens every day. It happens all over the world. So Herod had a, a party spirit filled with wine, was proud of his distinguished guest, excited by the sensual dance of Herodias' daughter, Salome. And because he was caught up in the moment, Herod made a reckless promise. And what was the promise? I'll I'll give you even up to half of my kingdom. Now, let me just give you a little bit of a note here. He didn't have that authority. But he was so filled with himself, he made it look like he had that authority. So no doubt, Salome was under the instruction of her wicked, revengeful mother. She planned to have her daughter dance. She planned to corner Herod. And when Salome could not decide or would not decide, she went out to her mother. And look at verse number 24. Now, the reason why she went out to her mother is because women, Jewish women, did not recline at the table with men when they were eating. Right, So it says in verse 24, and she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And immediately she came in haste before the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me right away the head of John the Baptist on a platter. So Salome wasted no time in making this request. And remember this, Satan is right there to accommodate the evil that evil request of a silly woman who hates, as he does, the servants of God. So Salome could have asked for anything. She was probably only a teenager here. How many things teenagers want, right? She could have asked for anything she wanted, but she didn't. She was as cold-hearted as her mother, She was as calculating as her mother. And it probably was because her mother beat her to death every day with, we got to get rid of John the Baptist. I guess the apple doesn't fall far from the tree here. One person, as I was reading, said that children are more easily trained for the devil than for God. It's true. It's easy to train somebody for evil because it's already there in their heart. Matter of fact, all you have to do is let them go. It's the parent's job because they have the power to restrain them, to direct them, to teach them, to discipline them, and to to put them on the path of, of knowing what is right and wrong, and hopefully to know who Christ is and want to live for them, him. All right, so that's what uh, we ought to do as parents. So what we see here in Scripture is a case of entrapment. His guest knew it. Salome knew it. Herodias knew it and planned it. And Herod had nowhere to go. If he refused her, he would have been laughed down and would have never outlived the shame. Herod was an adulterer. He was also full of his, his uh, full of self-importance and pride. And if you look at verse number twenty-six and verse twenty-seven, it says, "And although the king was very sorry, um, he was not necessarily sorry that John got put to death. He was sorry he got cornered, and had to do it." Look what it says. And although he, the king was very sorry, yet because of his oaths and because of his dinner de- guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. And immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. Now, tell me, that is not as low as you can go, right? 
I mean, this is incredible drama. So that leads us to really the whole point of the text, the death of John the baptizer. That's where it all was going. Who could have been a greater, there was no greater man living than John the Baptist. Jesus said that. He was a holy and righteous man, a man filled with truth, a preacher of truth and righteousness. He called Israel to repent and believe, and they were coming in droves to listen to him in the desert. He, he set the road for Jesus and the preaching of Jesus and the kingdom uh, to, end, to open the kingdom of God to those who repent and believe in him so they can know they have eternal life. That's what he was doing. So in this last section, what do we see here? We see in verse number 27, the last part of the verse, the beheading of a righteous man. And it says, and he went and had him beheaded in prison. So this righteous and holy man was handed over to the executioner because of a folly-ridden oath and the revenge of a wicked, sin-laden woman and her daughter. And then the presentation in verse 28, it says, and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl didn't give it to Herod. Look what it says. The girl gave it to who? Her mother. All right? The master of ceremonies was the wife, the manipulator, the one who entrapped him. That's who she was. So the girl waited in the dining hall to receive her guest, her request, excuse me, And once she received the head of John the baptizer, she rushed over to her mother and gave it to her. Of course, that's proof uh, positive that John is dead, right? And, of course, that seared conscience, wanting to get back at John, was her motive for living, at least up until this point. And the only good thing we see in the text is found in verse 29. It says, when his disciples heard about this, they came and took away his body and laid it in a tomb. So how little reward um, God's best uh, servants may receive on this side of eternity, in this world. An unjust imprisonment. John the baptizer suffered a violent death. That was the last fruit of his labor on earth gave up his life for the gospel on very much being the forerunner of Christ's death too. So the truth of the gospel of the kingdom of God in Christ can produce many specimens of opinions. If they are wrong, it is still unbelief and it will still receive condemnation and exclude people from the kingdom of God. The truth of the gospel of the kingdom of God in Christ can be imprisoned, yet it still, it still penetrates the human conscience to produce guilt of sin. It is still the gospel that will bring relief. For one, it will cause the their conscience to be haunted. For another, it will be, cause their conscience to be blessed. The truth of the gospel of the kingdom of God in Christ may be silenced by cutting down God's servant, by extinguishing the messenger, by killing the messenger, and yet it still speaks beyond the grave. See, you cannot kill testimony. You cannot kill the holy and righteous character. I'm still preaching to you about John the Baptist today. And he will be preached by others as time goes on. And his truth still goes out. He is still that man that speaks from the grave. It's like when I was preaching in Hebrews. When it was talking about the people of faith in Hebrews 11, it was interesting, it says this, 
it says, by faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts, and, and through faith, though he is dead, still speaks. So though John is dead, he still speaks. Well, John may have lost his head, but Herod, Herodias, and Salome lost their soul. You know what? The best for Christians is yet to come. For John, his rest, his crown, his wages, his reward are all on the other side of the grave. And you know what? That's why we live by faith. Because we're not going to receive all the reward. We're not going to receive everything that God promised us. We have it by faith. But when we die beyond the grave, we will obtain it. All of it. More than we could ever imagine or think what God has prepared for those who love him. Right? That is what the promise of the Bible is. So see, you cannot squash truth. You cannot... No matter how hard it gets, no matter how difficult it gets, God's word, the message of the kingdom of God will go on. I pray that you and I are are those messengers. That when we pass on, that our testimony will go on in our family, with our children, with our grandchildren. They will know what we stood for. They will know what we believed. They will know in whom we believed. They will know in whom we followed. And they will be sure about that, even if they decide not to, the testimony will still be with them and will resonate with them because it's the story of the family and it's a true story. I pray that for us. I pray that for your families and my families, right? Because remember, when you come to Christ, when you believe in Jesus, when you repent of your your sin and you trust in him by faith, everything changes, You can have victory all over your generational sins, your family sins, your personal sins, all of it because of Jesus Christ. See, that's where God's taken us. So John the Baptist, John the baptizer becomes the quintessential human person besides the Lord Jesus Christ of the one to exemplify in this world. Can we be righteous? And holy in character, like John? Yes. Can we speak the truth? Yes. Can we answer the ultimate question? Who do you say that I am? Can you answer that? If you can, then the blessings are endless for believers. Even though in this world we may suffer persecution, if, in fact, if you are righteous, you will suffer persecution. You know, it's amazing to me, because of our media, that there are probably more Christians being killed today in the world and, yes, beheaded in the world because of their faith than any time in human history, and we hear nothing of it. Nothing. Why is that? We ought to know. All right? We ought to know. Because you know what? It may be us next. It's not too far-fetched today that this world is very unstable. Governments are unstable. Monetary systems are unstable. Everything is unstable. Evil is abounding. God is thrown out. There's no ethics and morals anymore. And yet God calls us to live in the middle of a perverse and wicked generation holy. That means you have all the power to do it. No matter how bad it gets, you can live for Christ. And all God's people said, what? Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you this morning for this incredible passage of Scripture. Lord, in some ways it's surprising. In other ways, it's not. Because, Lord, we all know too well what sin does. We all know too well what a a guilty conscience is. We all know, Lord, too well that when we do know the truth, sometimes we just don't do it. 
We know it's right, and yet we don't do what's right. I pray, Lord, today from this passage and this text, you can build in us a stability and a strength of holiness and righteousness that will just grow as we grow in Christ. Lord, make us people like John the Baptist. Make us people that have a testimony that's strong, that can be passed on from generation to generation. Make us people like that. And I pray, Lord Jesus, you would use us in a very effective way as we give ourselves wholly to you, wholly to the control of the Spirit of God, wholly to the authority of Scripture, and that, Lord, you may transform our mind that each day we would know what is the good and the acceptable and the perfect will of God. I pray that for us, and I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Stand together.